Hello. Okay. Um, go ahead and take your seats, and we will <clears throat> progress with the uh, purpose of this evening, which is to rehear um, Matt McClavick's workshop from last summer on feminine deference. And one of the um, things that he did while he was giving his workshop was to essentially give his wife Adrian's testimony. So we're very happy to actually have Adrian here in person to give us her own testimony. So I don't know how they're gonna split their time. Um, I'm assuming by now you all know that um, Matt and Adrian come to us from Christ the Word, our sister church in Toledo. Um, very happy to have them uh, here with us. Drove from Toledo this afternoon. They'll go back tomorrow. Uh, Matt is an elder there, and Adrian is very involved in the women's ministries there, and we're happy to have them, and I'm just going to turn it over to them. Uh, you applaud now. <laughs> yeah, I want to thank uh, you for inviting me here again. It gave me an opportunity to... Uh, be with my wife without children, uh, at least in, in tow, for, for the first time in, now look, first I have to say, we date every week, we have a date, so don't think we don't have this type of stuff, but we have not been alone together, uh, apart from the kids, for I think 12 years, <laughs> so we're sitting in the car, having a great time, I mean, it's very weird to be able to talk without interruption with all the kids. Uh, we have kids uh, ages 20 down to age 3, so we are just at the point where we could leave the 3-year-old with grandparents and, uh, and come over here. But uh, So in the car, um, I, uh, I don't know, halfway through the trip, all of a sudden I felt a little bit of romantic something, and I said something to the effect of, I love you. And then she got this look on her face, which was really great. It was like the look she has always given me. It was an excited look. It's very weird to be married this, lo this long and have somebody like, ooh. <laughs> and she, she looks at me that way, and uh, she says, I love you too. And then I put my hand out uh, to hold her hand, because I thought this is a good time to hold her hand. So I put my hand out like this, and she shook it. <laughs> And then she switched hands, and she realized what she was doing, and held it like this. So, wow, things sure do change when you have a bunch of kids. Uh, that said, um, I'm here to speak to you about a, a, a topic called feminine deference, and if you really know what that means, and you knew what that meant from the first time you ever saw it, then you're quite... Uh, astute because I had no idea when they said, can you speak on this? Um, let me take this off. It's a little warm. So, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go at it tonight, and uh, Adrian's going to stand up uh, at the, about halfway through and give a testimony of some of her life and her struggles with this issue. And you might be wondering why they asked some, a man to speak to you on feminine deference. And I will say it's, it's probably the reason they asked me is because of my wife. They, people know my wife, and they know she's a woman of deference. 
So I've learned firsthand what it's like to be with a woman uh, who exercises feminine deference. I also, as an elder, have seen a great contrast for many years as to how hard it is for a woman or for a man to live with a wife who does not exercise feminine deference. So today I'm going to speak to you pretty straight on um, about how important it is to make this uh, the pattern of your life. And I'm going to have to do some defining of things. We'll get into all this. Feminine deference is one of the most highly valued and godly characteristics that a Christian girl or woman could aspire to attain. A characteristic that when exercised properly affects changes in her husband, her children, her friends, her church, and even the world around her. A characteristic that wields the very power of God and brings great glory. A characteristic that so threatens the modern-day world and the modern-day church that if you mention it, suggest it, or dare to live it, you will most certainly find yourself under seething attack, mockery, or belittlement. Deference is a characteristic that is completely countercultural and should be truly Christian cultural. So let us begin this evening with a working definition of deference. I'll repeat this for you. It's a little bit long. It's the ability to respectfully and graciously, that's kind of part one, yield or submit, part two, to the opinion or to the judgment, opinion, or will of another. I, I will repeat that. It's the ability to respectfully and graciously yield or submit to the judgment, opinion, or will of another. So, this Christian power that I speak about, the power that is to change everything, am I exaggerating when I say it should change everything? I don't think so. The power that's going to change everything is based on yielding and submitting. Huh? That doesn't sound like something that is exercising power. Isn't it the opposite? I mean, couldn't anyone easily yield and submit to their husband or to an elder or pastor? Couldn't they? No. Yielding and submitting takes a great deal of power. It's far more difficult than it sounds because the ability to voluntarily yield or submit hinges on that which is beyond us, that which is beyond our natural inclinations, desires, and abilities. How many men, women, or children growing up, grow up saying to themselves, when I grow up, I can't wait to live a life of yielding and submitting? I'll tell you how many, zero. From the earliest of ages, a child must learn to yield, submit, and fall in line with the order that has been established. If not, he or she will become an absolute terror. At the heart of the ability to defer is the ability to exercise trust or faith in something or someone else. This is why the worldly person becomes unhinged when, you, when they think they may have to put trust in anyone but themselves. 
Likewise, many a worldly Christian will claim a position of trusting in God while actually living a life of distrusting God as they reject trusting in the authorities that God has placed over them. Not yielding or submitting to God, God's appointed authorities, whether it be parents or husbands or elders or even governments, is to reject and to not trust in God's established rule. Many Christians tread into dangerous territory as they actively reject God's created order and ordinations. Instead, the Christian life should be characterized as a life of deference, encompassing both men and women alike. However, the tactics for how and when a person yields are defined differently for each of the sexes based on the authority structures that God has put into place. We tend to have a mostly negative view of deference because no one likes others telling them what to do. And if you're looking for the perfect scenario for you to naturally and willingly exercise your deference, then you really don't understand the high calling and high honor of deferring of sacrificing your life to God. If you think that you could be more deferential if only God would change your setting, if only you hadn't made some misstep that got you into a tough setting, then you're missing the boat of God's loving providence and work in your life. Yet you say, I'll sacrifice it all for God but not for some sinful or foolish man you placed over me. Our learning how to defer to God in the most difficult circumstances will be developed and tested out as we learn how to defer to those he's placed over us. Christ said, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Your spiritual faith faith is played out, developed, and tested through the difficulties and challenges of real-life settings that demand our faith and obedience to him. So to begin to unpack our understanding of proper feminine deference, we must first look at certain elements of God's created order. The great I am that I am, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was. He was the self-existing one. He was complete. He was lacking nothing. He was happy. He was satisfied. He was love. He was everything and the source of everything that would become anything. In particular, he was the creator. He spoke, and as he spoke, creation would form as words flowed from his mouth. Creation would follow his pattern. The pattern would bring to substance glories and perfections of his holiness. Creation from its smallest particle to its largest galaxies, from earth to sky, from light to dark, from the land to the sea, from the plants to the animals, to the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, from man to woman, all creation would be perfect. Perfect creation, perfect harmony, and perfect order. It would be patterned after I am that I am. So God created 
man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, together, he created them in his image. And it's patterned after him, not after us. God didn't just create male and female. He created man first out of the ground, and then for the sake of man, he fashioned woman out of him. Adam was then given the mantle of authority over her as he named her. He named her. That sounds simple enough. But who are you allowed to name? Who can you name? Can you name my children? Can I name your children? Can I name, I don't know if you name a house. (laughs) Some people do. Can I name your house? Can I name, I have a business. Can you name my business? No, of course not. Adam named the animals. And he named his wife. And it is because you can name that which you have authority over. So, So it is much bigger when he names her than just, oh, Adam, what do you think? He named her. And then, of course, in the marriage relationship, the woman takes the name of the husband. He essentially names her. This was the order established. Adam would name Eve, and he would be her head, and she would be his wife and his helpmate and mother of his children. Creation that was perfect in every way, in order and harmony, with not a single way to improve upon, absolute perfection, because God was and is and always will be absolutely perfect. Ah, wasn't life wonderful back then, before rebellion? Adam and Eve were tempted, and then they had a thought, an idea that was seemingly not too radical of an idea, at least not by today's standards. Come on, just a little taste of forbidden fruit certainly could not lead to anything too bad, could it? The concepts of lying and murder, strife and cheating and stealing and adultery and shame and broken relationships were not known to them. They were not understood by them. They were not even imagined by them before the fatal taste. How could such things come from such a little act? Why would they even consider doing it? But deep down, they had a thought that thrilled them. We can be like God. And so the rebellion began. Rebellion against God, against his perfect command, against his perfect order, against his perfect creation. Within minutes, the collapse of creation would begin, and it would start with their decision to not follow God. Within seconds, the woman would reorder her relationship with her husband by taking the lead, and after a few more seconds, the man would abdicate his headship and follow his wife. God's perfect order, God's perfect harmonious creation would make a radical shift and fall. At that same moment, God would be absolutely still the same. The same holiness, the same perfection, the same essence, the same ruler, the same everything. But man for his own sake could no longer inhabit the place of perfection. Otherwise, he'd be destroyed by the holiness of his father. And so now we groan. We groan because we are cast out into this fallen mess of disorder where everyone imagines himself to be a God. We, along with all of creation, groan for the day that perfect order is reestablished. But until that day, we Christians are called to be holy, 
to set ourselves apart. We are called to come back to, into the light of Christ, and we are called to reorder our lives to be in line with God's perfect order. We are, after all, once again, his new creation in which the perfect order of the perfect God will be reestablished. As this new creation, God has graciously kept us in this fallen world as he reshapes us for heaven. This means that although we are delivered through Christ back to a relationship with God the Father, we now have the very, and we now have the very power of God himself indwelling us by his Holy Spirit, we still must live out our days under the curse of God. The curse, the great lever that God has put in place to pry us away from loving and trusting in the world and to lead us back to loving and trusting him by teaching us to live by faith. The curse of God that is over our world is critical to understand, especially in regard to us understanding the difficulty of exercising deference. God cursed the man, but in particular to the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So at the very point that Eve decided she could rule over her husband, God has firmly established that her husband will, in fact, rule over her. This is very hard. Your husband will rule over you, whether he is a good husband or a bad husband. But most certainly, he is a sinful husband. This curse is typified in the relationship of husband and wife, but it also projects itself far beyond to all headship or authority types of relationships. There are rulers and there are those who are subordinate. There will always be a conflict and a resistance to any type of established rule, especially Uh, during the time of the fall. Whether it be a teaching ruler or a teacher ruling over a, I'm sorry, a a teacher ruling over a student or a boss ruling over an employee, there's going to be rebellion and pushback against all type of authority. This seemingly upside-down broken relationship, okay, this is what this is getting to, This seemingly upside-down broken relationship becomes the primary basis for her salvation and her sanctification. Be not dismayed, for God has established this very curse so that you might return to God and be made holy. If you will not be ruled by your husband or by your appointed authorities, which is the reestablishment of God's perfect order then you will not, in fact, be ruled by God. Right now, as I speak, there are women sitting here in this room who think they are okay with God, even though they will not fully submit to their husband or to other appointed authorities. One day, God will remove the curse, but until that day, we must learn to live with it through the power of Jesus Christ instead of trying to escape it or come up with a new way to live around the curse. 
God perfectly created woman to be a helpmate and a mother and a wife, and she is perfectly equipped in every way for this station of life. She is most highly capable and has been given a most glorious calling to fulfill. But today, the world mocks you with its lies, lies put forth by Satan through scoundrels of men who want the free love of women but who despise the cost of responsibility that goes with that love, and lies put out by women who vehemently despise authority, headship, and especially fatherhood. And they'll do anything to prove that they don't need a husband or a father or a head or a provider. They have been taught. They have learned. They have become wise. They need not trust in anyone but themselves. God, in fact, created woman to be the very glory of man. She's the crown of his head. She's the flesh of his very flesh. She's his beautiful bride, and she is the mother of all mankind. She must not strive to become like a man. She is as Adam named her, and as I would say of my wife Adrian, she is all woman. The Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. It is not good. I will make him a helper fit for him. Here in Genesis 2.18, we find God saying, man needs help. Remember, he did this when creation was perfect. He created man to need help, to be incomplete. God made, made him this way. He would not make it in life without help. But was it all about man? No, since God made man to need a helper, the helper was to be a most valuable part of the plan. After all, God said later that the two would become one flesh, one body, complete. So anyone who argues in any sense that man is more important than woman has a mental hernia. His elevator does not go to the top floor. Man is lacking, and man is in need of a great helper. Women, you are to excel in this calling of being a helper. And if God has given you a husband... You are to excel in the role of helping him. For every man who excels, look for a more glorious woman right behind him. And if he happens to be a godly man, well then look for a wife who exceeds him in godliness. But is it really only about husbands and wives? No, every daughter, every young lady, every older woman who has no husband should be living their lives following the same godly pattern a helper to God's church, a helper to her employer if she works, a helper to young ladies, a helper to children, a helper to struggling mothers, a helper to older women, a helper to you name it. Don't look down on the position of helping. It is of highest esteem in God's kingdom. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Women, you are the glory of and crown of your husband, and you are the glory and crown of a manly church that serves the Lord with vigor. You complete the men. And if you don't, or if you won't, take up your calling, well, quite frankly, you will suffer under weak and incomplete men. Let me speak to those of you women who think you should be more in a partnership with your husband or with authorities that God has placed over you, 
Many of you think that your husband or the church should take on the duty of being your helpmate. Yes, the church is full of women who have bought into the partnership lie that our world preaches. Partnership really means to the worldly woman, I'll help you and you help me and we'll get along. God did not make man to be your helper. God did not make man to be your helper. This may come as a shock to some of you. Yes, godly men will do all sorts of things to help, bless, provide for you, protect you, care for you. But God did not make man to be your helper. How many women here sap their husband's energy, strength, and focus so that they can be the center of his attention? A good man has much to do and accomplish, and your help is absolutely essential to him. This is how God made it. Look, however, at a home where a husband's wife demands that he be her helpmate, and you will find one pitiful setting, guaranteed. The wife will never be content or happy without her husband's full attention. Oh, and she'll find a way to get it. This oppressive Christian wife will belittle, overtake, manipulate, and deprecate on her husband until he becomes the mouse of a man that she wants to serve her. So if your complaint is that your husband is a mouse of a man and you wish he'd lead you better, might it be that you have helped to make him this way by refusing to serve him and yield to him and submit to him? Do you give to your husband full support Full help, full service, full backing, always. Or do you measure this stuff out, or withhold it, or even work against him? If you do work against him, you are the less for it. And he is really the less for it, because he's lacking the helper that he needs, which makes him far worse of a man. Amazingly, many women in the church would prefer lesser men and a lesser life so that they will not have to sacrifice too much. Many of these same women enjoy searching out the sympathies of others for how terrible it is to have a man man who doesn't lead or properly provide or who are not loving them enough. Yes, these men are are likely failing in many areas and are responsible by God for their failure. But would they be failing to the degree they are if their women were exercising complete deference? In a few cases, yes, they would still fail. But in most cases, given some time, their men would start to shine. There's nothing more powerful in Christ to change a man than having the complete and strong support of a great woman. Yes, every husband needs to be called to lead, but if you are not willing to follow and support, even when he is difficult, you are in in effect killing your husband. You're killing your own flesh. If this is you, stop it. Repent and take up the staff of helpmate. It is your highest calling, and it is your greatest gift. 
My own wife, Adrian, is a real woman of deference. I'm sure she doesn't like me saying that while she's sitting up here. By that, I mean she has struggled through a lifetime of giving up her life for the sake of her husband, her family, and especially God's church. In stark contrast to Adrian is her sister, Jennifer, who lives a very different sort of life. Much fruit, according to its kind, has been born of these two women. And I asked Adrian to speak to us of her experience of learning deference and of giving up the world, while her sister pursued the opposite. I think many here will be able to relate with her struggle. It'll be a different story, but I think you'll be able to find yourself much in her struggle. And then when she's done with... uh, this testimony that she's going to bring, I will uh, get to some specifics on uh, how we're going to deal with uh, implementing feminine deference. Adrian, This one? Okay. Hi. My older sister Jennifer and I are the only children in our family when we were growing up. And born 13 months apart, we were the best of friends. I'm hard-pressed to think of a single memory from my happy childhood that did not include my sister Jennifer. We enjoyed the same things, we pursued the same extracurricular activities, and we spent most of our time together. My parents strongly emphasized the importance of a good education, and the drive for academic excellence consumed my sister and I from the earliest ages. Jennifer was naturally brilliant, and I'm not. But not wanting to be left behind, I did everything it took to achieve the same grades as she earned pretty effortlessly. During our high school years, we began attending Young Life. Do you know what Young Life is? Yes. Okay. We, we were both introduced to the gospel at that time. And here's where our paths began to diverge. Jennifer went to Young Life meetings and social events and even some Bible studies, but she didn't seem particularly interested in the gospel message. And in contrast, I instantly knew that this message of salvation was very different from the dry church services that we went to with my parents every Sunday. I wanted what my Young Life leaders had. The seeds of faith were planted in me, but it would be many years before they really began to grow. I believed the correct things about Jesus, but my life in many ways at that time was really unaffected. Her senior year in high school, Jennifer achieved the Oscar Award of Academics. She was accepted to Harvard. She was thrilled, and my parents were proud, and I was very happy for her. After all, from our earliest days, the question was not, where would you go to college, but what is the highest ranking college you can possibly get into? So she left for Boston and spent the next four years preparing for what would surely be a very promising and lucrative career. The next year, I was a senior, and I applied to a multitude of colleges and was accepted to Georgetown University. Although it wasn't an Ivy League school, I figured it fit the bill for being a good college, and I decided to go there. The seeds of faith that God had planted in my life in high school did not wither up and die in college. I actually didn't know, after my freshman year, I didn't know any other Christians during my time there. 
there were not any Christian organizations like InterVarsity or Campus Crusade or anything like that on campus. Um, but God still ha had his hand on me. And during those years, I prayed and I read my Bible daily. And I thought of myself as being a Christian. That's what I identified myself as being. But looking back, it's disturbing to me that I was able to live the life I did without the slightest twinge that God would maybe not be pleased with my choices. I attended a church service led by a man and his wife who were co-pastors. And I remember they used a gender-neutral hymn book, meaning they went through all the hymns and any place where it said man, they changed it to folk, as in, good Christian folk rejoice. And I thought this was kind of dorky, but I didn't question it at all. I was an English major, and I spent the last two years in the honors program, and every single course in the honors program had a feminist slant to it. My senior thesis was a feminist approach to Shakespeare, in which I demonstrated how the great bard's writing revealed a deep-seated disdain for women. My knowledge of the Bible was so limited that it never occurred to me that God might have an opinion about these things. Meanwhile, Jennifer had graduated from Harvard, and she had earned a Fulbright scholarship to study in Europe for a year. She studied, studied but she also lived a very glamorous life that seemed to be something out of a Hollywood movie. She wrote me letters describing sipping champagne on a yacht in the French Riviera with an Italian boyfriend. She visited castles in Germany and vineyards in Italy and spas in France. She returned from her year in Europe and began working in Boston, earning six figures. Having no one to spend this money on other than herself, she took lavish vacations, she bought designer clothing, she thought nothing of dropping a few hundred dollars at the makeup counter in a department store. She went to graduate school at MIT, earning an MBA, and she quickly found a high-octane job in New York City. So what was I doing during those years? I decided that I was going to be a wildly successful newspaper reporter. So during my senior year, I applied to graduate schools. I graduated from Georgetown in the top 1% of my class, was accepted in the t into the top journalism program in America, but then made a decision that would change the course of my life. I felt led by the Lord. Remember, I did, I was, God was still working in me at this time. And I, I felt led by the Lord to defer my admission to graduate school for one year in order to do a year of volunteer work. I figured that this was the perfect time to do a year of Christian service as I was not yet immersed in a career. The graduate school agreed to hold my spot for the following fall, for a fee, of course, and I applied to programs all over America that ministered to teenage delinquent kids. That's what I, I thought I wanted to do for that year, teenage delinquents. Well, I, I, well at the time, I was kind of... <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> what I was thinking. Okay. Um, I was a soon-to-be college graduate offering to work basically for free, just room and board, and every single program I applied to rejected me. Only one located in Toledo, Ohio, finally agreed that they would take me. And actually, I found out later that they didn't 
actually want me. That's another story. But it, they didn't even want me to come, but they kind of had to take me. So this Christian-based program in Toledo. Yeah. That's because I was praying for a wife. Yeah. Well, that's the real reason. But uh, it took me a while to figure that out. It took some doing to get me from Idaho to Washington, D.C. to Toledo. So God had to, yeah. So this Christian-based program in Toledo had group homes for teenage delinquent boys. And I stepped off the airplane in Toledo certain that God would use me for great things during that year. However, the leader of this ministry quickly decided that there was really no way I could work with the teenage boys who were housed there. Because, like Matt said, I was like 20 and I was a girl and... They were only a few years younger than me, and they were all boys, and <clears throat> this was not going to work. And they were delinquents. I mean, that's why they were in this place in the first <laughs> place. These were not upstanding citizens, you know. So I ended up living for that year with the leader of that ministry and his family, which included eight small children. I lived with them. I changed their diapers I cooked for them, I did their laundry, I cleaned their house, I drove their children to and from school. I basically had no interaction with the teenage kids that I had come to Toledo thinking that I was going to serve. I did their laundry sometimes. That's about it. During my entire growing up years, I just have to add this so you understand the context, during my entire growing up years to that point, my first 20, 21 years of life, I had known one woman who ever got pregnant and had a baby. One. So I was, I was completely unfamiliar with young children. And to say that this was an unexpected turn of events was putting it mildly. The mother of this family that I was living with quickly assessed the situation a 21-year-old feminist who did not particularly like children was going to be living with her for a year. She started meeting with me every morning for a Bible study before her children woke up. And now, having had a number of young children, I understand now what this cost her. She woke up at 4.50 every morning. And she began teaching me about every single woman in the Bible and how she fulfilled the role that God had for her. I kept a journal at that time. And after the first week of this study, I wrote, women are supposed to submit to men? It's an interesting idea, but I don't buy it. I had never heard it before. Praise the Lord, however, he quickly and radically worked through that Bible study to change my mind about completely pretty much everything. To state it as briefly as possible, by the end of that year, I had met my husband, declined my admission to graduate school, and decided that a high-powered career is not actually what I wanted. My parents and sister were horrified. I got married to this handsome and godly man sitting here, and mainly to appease my family, I enrolled at the University of Toledo to get a teaching certification to teach high school English. During my student teaching, I became pregnant with our first child. They were even more horrified. What a waste of education. What about my career? How could I? 
Matt and I had two children, became deeply involved in ministry, and lived a happy life. During those years, however, whenever the Georgetown Alumni Magazine arrived, which listed the details of my classmates' successful careers, I fell into a funk for days. My sister would visit one year, once a year, and I always felt very inferior and inadequate. I remember she visited us in Toledo one scorching hot summer. She had recently returned from some lavish European vacation on the Mediterranean Sea. We couldn't afford air conditioning in our little house, and it was 90 degrees and humid. And the only respect I could offer her from the heat was to sit in our backyard with my two toddlers in a little plastic wading pool. And it wasn't even on a nice lawn. We had, we had basically dirt. We had a mole problem. And <laughs> I realized how pathetic my life must seem in her eyes, and it stung. I knew deeply that I was doing what God wanted me to do, and there was sac- satisfaction in that. But I still wondered if I was missing something when I compared myself to my sister. We were married for 10 years before I was finally and wonderfully released from this burden. At that time, God convicted Matt and I that we were holding on to the world's idea of what our lives should be. God's order was not dictating our decisions. The world's order was dictating our decisions. I discovered that my own idea of happiness was deeply rooted in unbiblical ideals. This conviction infiltrated many areas of our life, from our finances, to our family size, to our choice of churches. I see so clearly now what eluded me for so many years, that leading a life of self-sacrifice is the only fulfilling way to lead my life, and the only way to please the Lord. Serving Christ wholeheartedly must include sacrificing myself for others, giving up myself over and over until it's uncomfortable and even hurts. As I serve my family and others in ways that no one may ever see or maybe even acknowledge, myself is stripped away. The world would say this is a horrible thing. What about my needs? What about my ambitions? That's what the world says. The Lord says it is glory. My family is still somewhat horrified at our life. Why would we want to raise children until we're almost in our 70s? Why would we want to exhaust our finances and our schedules with church stuff? But their questioning of our life no longer bothers me because Christ has given me such joy and peace in the decisions that we've made. And I do see an acknowledgement on their part that our life is filled with blessing, even though they might not call it that or completely understand it. As Christ has given me contentment in the station he has for me, a place of self-sacrifice, I view my sister differently than I used to. First, I love her and I pray for her salvation because that's the real difference between us. That's why I am joyfully able to live a life of self-sacrifice while she is leading a life of self-indulgence. And what has this life of self-indulgence brought her? 
broken relationships with many boyfriends, two divorces, alcoholism, deliberate childlessness, plastic surgery, loneliness, antidepressants, a high-paying but empty career, a fear of aging. She attained everything the world says is valuable, and she is miserable. For 20 years, she has called me periodically crying because of the destruction she has brought upon her life, and yet she still often views our life as provincial, narrow, and antiquated. She feels sorry for me, and I pity her. I look at my two daughters. One is still very young, and I pray for her salvation and that she will understand these things. The other is entering womanhood with a faith I didn't even know existed when I was her age. To look at my daughter and see her embrace God's role for her brings me such joy that I don't really know how to describe it. The Lord brought me to this point through years of living as a Christian while continuing to learn to give up the world that was planted so deeply in me. My prayer for my daughters is that embracing God's role for them will be as natural as breathing. So that's why we invited Adrian, <laughs> the better half. These reflections of Adrian give us a pretty good picture of some of the dynamics at work, both in the world and in the sanctification process that a godly woman must go through as she becomes a new creation. And the ability for her to defer to God's order, to look away from her own plans, will be key in her ability to follow God, her ability to defer to God. Now we're going to go through the words of the definition of feminine deference that I gave you earlier, and we're going to talk about um, kind of each section of it and talk about some application uh, feminine deference, first and foremost, relies on the very power of God to achieve. This equates to trusting in his plans, his created order, and his ordinations. Faking deference without trusting in God will leave you disappointed, empty, and frustrated. Satisfaction from God will only come about when you embrace his intended plan. As my wife Adrian said, leading a life of self-sacrifice is the only way. Practically, how good are you at respectfully and graciously yielding or submitting to the judgment, opinion, or will of your appointed heads? Let us consider each of these desired attributes and you do the self-evaluating. First on respect, how well do you show respect to your authorities when you defer to them? How well do you show them respect? Do you still honor them and speak kindly of them to others, even in regards to the matter that you deferred in? Or perhaps do you begrudgingly give in while telling others of your sacrificial yielding, while in the next breath you speak of why you would not do it that way if it were up to you? If you have a habit of doing this, then you are only feigning deference. If you can only muster up a fake deference, then you should go ahead and expect the worst in the area of your faux deferral. Because get this, 
The power of God comes with force when you actually trust him, not when you fake it. Your complete backing of the authority in which you defer is necessary and impacting. Anything less than this, full backing, and you might as well have just not deferred in the first place. When you fully back your God-given authorities, God will ultimately bring about great things because he will fully back you. In the area of graciousness, okay, here's the deal. When you offer grace to your authority, when you defer to them against your desire, you are taking a position of sacrifice. You are giving them something they have not earned and don't deserve, the same as Christ did for us. At the heart of deferring is the fact that you don't want to do what the other person wants to do. You are, after all, deferring to their judgment, opinion, or will, which is obviously not yours. Otherwise, you would not be deferring. You'd be agreeing with them. Are you typically full of grace, full of grace when you have to defer? By this I mean, do you fully back them and give to them all of your support, all of your help, all of your encouragement, and all of your aid, even if they falter? And do you give of yourself willingly with a joyful attitude? Or do you you make those who you have deferred to pay you for your grace? I'll give you a little and you give me a little, and maybe we can work something out. Or if you give me some of your mandrakes, then I'll reward you later tonight. Or I'll back you... When you convince me that you are right and I am wrong, and not until then. So convince me. No, instead, you must embrace your position as a follower of your authority. Embrace it without expectation of payback or dividend. God will give you your dividends. Don't demand payback from those to whom you defer. You are giving them a free gift the gift of God's grace that is found in your deferral. This is powerful. Yielding and submitting. Yielding and submitting is really hard to do. You must understand yourself as being first. You must understand yourself as being under authority. And you must anticipate your authority and be ready to follow him. This will help a great deal if you have this mind. The nub of the problem is this. At times you may agree with your authority's decision and at times you may not. Yes, you feel really good when someone asks you to do something and you're in full agreement. But when you are in full disagreement, what do you do? First, you must be ready to yield at all times to your authority. This means get ready to follow even when they may be wrong. If they are wrong in a big way, It is still your job to follow and to help them. You may have to submit at times with no question. However, a good follower will always be looking out for the best interest of their head. So when you see a real problem or danger, you should approach the authority with all respect and reverence and ask to be heard. Try this out. Approach the authority who doesn't want to hear you and just ask to be heard. 
If the authority will hear you, then speak and let them know your thoughts and concerns, and then turn it back over to them for their decision and be ready to follow. So express your concerns, but then say, but you make the decision and I'll do what you want. Don't express your concerns and just leave it out there. Here's my opinion. You do what you want. (laughs) Not that way. (laughs) Turn it back over to them and be ready to follow. If If your authority still pursues a bad path, then it becomes your duty to help protect him and lessen the impact of his mistake. You do this in any way you can find possible without usurping his headship or his command or God's commandments. Exercising this level of deference is surely very difficult, but it is also very doable. My wife is absolutely great at this, since like most men, when I speak, I really do believe that I am right. Always. I mean, that's a guy. Adrian, my helpmate, will ask me questions. She'll prompt thoughts in me. She'll pray. She will pray. She won't tell me. I'm praying that you... No, she'll pray. And then I go back and I say, you know, I've been thinking about this. And then I get mad at her because she says, yeah, I was praying. I'm like, oh, not again. Okay. Often, when she does this, I do change my mind because of her help. In some cases, the authority will not hear you. They have made up their mind, right or wrong. Keep in mind, it could be right, not always wrong. In either case, you need to respectfully, respecting their position, you are trusting in God by respecting the position, the order. That's why you're able to do this. You're able to respect them and graciously back them with your life and yield and submit to them as you trust in God's order. Will you yield? Will you graciously and respectfully yield to your God-appointed authorities? They are, after all, appointed to you for your ultimate care. As I said earlier, those who won't yield to the authorities God has established ultimately will not yield to God. Let me also mention here that, as an aside, that all men do not have authority over all women, as some men would argue. Yes, women are functionally made to be helpers, and men are functionally made to be heads, but unless the man is an ordained authority by God's call, office, position, or created order, directly over the woman, then the woman is not under his direct authority. But remember, there are many wise men and women that you should be listening to and deferring to and following their example, even if they don't hold a position over you. Now on to judgment, opinion, and will. You need to properly yield to others' judgments, opinions, and wills. Don't argue and debate everything as if you are the authority when you are not. Obviously, no man on this earth has perfect judgment, has all the correct opinions, or a perfect will. Even so, it is not your job to judge 
those exercising rule over you. Help them. Defer to them. Try to understand their judgments. But do not become their judge. Do you speak as a judge to others about those who exercise judgment over you? If you do, you're a usurper of authority. Do you listen and try to understand the opinions of the authority over you? Or do you not listen and only hear your own opinion? And will you not rest in your clanging until they yield and your opinion becomes their opinion? If you do this, then you are working to manipulate your head. Most husbands, unless they are willing to fight you and win, will ultimately be worn down by the constant attack on their headship. They will check out and disconnect. You will become the old nag that the men joke about when they suffer under a pushy wife. And finally, will you happily and joyfully follow the will of others? Or do you really only continually seek to live according to your own selfish desires? Christ did the will of his Father completely and perfectly, laying aside his own will while taking up the Father's will as his own. Do you take up the will, do you take up the will of those God has placed above you as your own? This is the high calling of God, that we become nothing and that he becomes everything. So, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, God will highly exalt you when you defer. Defer with grace. And one final exhortation, relax. Relax in God's will for your life. Relax in his order. God's will for your life is not that complex. Follow his commandments and his perfect order and relax and become happy. How many of us live in continual strife because we must achieve everything our own way? Oh, how we try to find another way around him and his perfect plans for us so that we can be like God's. Give it up and rest in him. You will be amazed how he will give you peace and satisfaction in him when you quit kicking against his goads. He has already done everything for you. Will he not love you forever? Bless his holy name. Let's pray. Father, it is a high call to sacrifice our lives, uh, to lay aside our selfish desires which... Of all people, I am the most selfish. Lord, forgive us for these sins of rejecting your order. Forgive us of these sins for, of, uh, of trying to be gods in our own life. Father, your, 
perfect order has been established and your Holy Spirit is at work with great power. Uh, But Lord, we need to uh, get out of the way and we need to submit. We need to submit to you. We need to take comfort uh, submitting under the authorities you've put above us. And I ask for your help in doing this. I ask, Father, that this would be that this would be of great glory and power to your church as your original created order um, would be seen with, with uh, much more power than we see it even now in our midst. So, Lord, we are a, a needy people and a sinful people, and we ask for your help, and we ask that we will quit kicking against the goads of your uh, command and your word and your discipline and your created order. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our great deliverer, and in his name we pray, amen. I don't know if some of you need to leave because this has gone um, longer than we would have anticipated um, because we had the whole first hour taken with the other situation, but I'm hoping that a lot of you can stay. We'll have a um, period of question and answers. We didn't really talk about this beforehand. Sure. sure. uh, And I just want to uh, add something because of um, what we've been through as a church body that um, they did not refer to you know, generally we're talking about our husbands are our heads, but that we um, have the elders of the church, our church leaders are the authority over our husbands. And there have been times where the women of the church have had to go to the elders, um, you know, sort of claiming a higher authority. There have also been times where the elders have come, you know, spoken into wives in a different way, than the husband has, and, um, you know, I'm thinking of this because it was only, I don't know how long ago it was, a year and a half or two years ago, they were all sitting in this exact same, you know, place talking about why David and Barbara Lair were leaving the church, Um, but that was a situation where the elders were giving some input into their lives um, differently than what David wanted, and Barbara chose to do what David wanted to do and left the church. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I did want to add a, mm-hmm. just a reminder that we do have um, the elders as our ultimate authority um, over our husbands, and mm-hmm. that is also a protection that the Lord has given us, that it's that fortunately our husbands are not the one and all ultimate authority in our lives. Who's got a question to either Matt or Adrian? You said something about um, her asking you questions in the context of helping you. Mm-hmm. What kind of questions are helpful and respectful in the context of discussing a situation in which there's disagreement? Is that too vague? Or no, that's that's clear. But the the topic would be vague. I, the questions are really fairly natural. I mean, it's, she sees I'm doing something wrong, and so it depends on the setting. And she'll start to, you know, have you considered this? Have you thought about this? Now, if, at times I'll get a little hyper, and I might uh, push back. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know if you can speak to that better. Um, what do you think about when 
well, the you're first, in that scenario. The first thing I think about, honestly, is this actually something that I need to ask him? Like I have found over the course of our marriage that in many cases, my urge is to speak and to question or to disagree. And I've found that that's really not productive and helpful because it puts him on the defense and makes him mad, you know. And I have found that what God really works through is not my um, arguing with Matt, but when there's an issue that I truly disagree with, I really have committed most often to pray about a situation that God, if Matt is wrong, that God would convict him by the Holy Spirit and that if I'm wrong, that God would change my heart about it. And it is amazing how many times in the last 22 years that God does that and is faithful to that. And the first example that where I really committed to pray about it very early in our marriage was I wasn't really raised with TV. He was raised with a lot of TV, but he watched a lot of TV and we had our first child and it just was like the child seemed to be a distraction to the TV instead of, you know, Matt wanting to play with the child, he'd be like sucked into the TV. So I just started praying instead of nagging him, why don't we turn off the TV? I started praying, okay, Lord, can you just convict Matt that we shouldn't have the television on while um, Nathan is awake? And I prayed this maybe for two months and we were going for a walk and Matt said to me, you know, I've been thinking we just need to get rid of our television. Like it was so far beyond what I prayed. I never thought to pray that. And God did that. And we haven't had one now for 22 years. Our children have been raised without one. And that was just, to me, it was like, wow, a light went off in my head that he's a godly man. He'll respond to the Holy Spirit. And when I do come to a point of questioning, I really do it with fear and trepidation. I have to, you know, because I, you know, you have to weigh, is this worth, get, is my way worth getting is it worth the cost to get my way? And lots of times if I examine myself, no, it's not. You know, we're called to sacrifice ourselves. And sometimes I'll let him be wrong. <laughs> oh, thanks. No, well, it's okay. no, her, her, her being respectful is key, though, yeah. in the conviction of the Holy Spirit on me. Um, you know, if I'm mad and she is calm, <laughs> and she acts godly, and then she leaves it to me, then I'm usually the guy up thinking in the middle of the night, you know, okay, I you know, argue back and forth in your head like you do. Okay, okay, she's right, she's right. But I'm still mad at her for this. <laughs> she's right. So, and I don't think that would be there if she gave me a whole lot of reason to attack her. So if she was coming at me in a nastiness, you know, I can get stirred up pretty, pretty good. <laughs> what did I, you said span. Yeah, we have, uh, she likes to answer this because she's the mother, so I'm going <laughs> to jump in. <laughs> we, have, we have six children, 20, Nathan, our oldest is down in Alabama in college and our uh, daughters, uh, freshmen at local university, and then we go on down to. Uh, well, we had this eight-year gap. See, when we just had the two. Yeah, and we were living by the world standards. We were just and we were, done. Okay, we had a boy and a girl, and that was like, that was really symmetrical, and it worked. 
And then we had oh, it was, four it would allow, it would have allowed our self, our selfishness to, yeah. you know, it's the yeah. world's way. Yeah. But yeah, we, we really were brought into, you know, a church and in, in our case, it was a Bailey church, but not this Bailey church where all of a sudden we have this preaching and it wasn't just preaching about having kids. That probably wasn't it. It was actually, actually loved children, loved them. And we had not seen that in former church, you know, not really love them. I mean, everybody loves their kid, but they loved kids. And that probably was the, as soon as we uh, started with that, I was immediately convicted that we had to continue to have children. And that was about 10 years in. That's why she said her life changed to 10 years in or so. You you can talk about her kids now. No, no, you pretty much covered it. (laughs) Our daughter is dating Ben Bailey. Comes from good stock. <laughs> yeah, that was being prayed about for a while. Yeah, seriously, we prayed about like it, if they end up getting married, that is as close to an arranged marriage as you could get. Like we prayed about the. You can arrange it still. <laughs> like we prayed about it, and then now they're in love. It's kind of remarkable. Really. <laughs> You're announcing that. <laughs> I hope they hear this tape. <laughs> How do you teach your daughter's deference? I think it's to model it. Because now our youngest is three. She has no clue. But Audrey will see, you know, I mean, you, see, you know, the dynamics that go on in a family and she will see maybe her dad make a choice that... A dad, dad sins. And Mom acts appropriate. Well, you know, You can she, say that. Okay, let's say Matt sins. We're just speaking hypothetically, but let's say it happens. <laughs> Not and, you know, Audrey has watched me and how I respond to that. And, um, you know, I, I learned it first with this Christian family. I only lived with them for a year, but that... I mean, looking back, like, the husband in that family was... He was a very poor husband. He was a very poor husband. And this woman submitted and honored him, even though he was really a bad husband and a bad father in a lot of ways. And yet she honored him. And I thought, wow. You know, now I'm in a marriage, how easy it is to honor him compared to what she did. And she did it. Yeah, that's the power of God. We, yeah. When I'm saying, you know, grace kicks in when you actually do this stuff, it does. Mm-hmm. God's power kicks in. So many of the people we deal with in our church that are having issues, marriage issues, maybe raising the family issues with husbands and wives, or wives are leading, husbands are not. There's no power there, and most of the times that, since that wife is leading, she's just attacking all the time. And she thinks that if she can, she might even have some sort of good motive. I, I want to get him to do something. Um, you've got to, uh, you know, do something with the boys. You've got to, well, her pushing too much that way uh, really just pushes the husband away. And it's, it's part of this not letting the power of God work. You know, when you say the man needs help, men shut off. I don't know who here understands this. But you want me to shut up? Then really keep coming at me with something. Now, I'll shut up. 
and I'll go do my thing. I'll do what guys do. They have their, their basements nowadays. <laughs> you know, they have their place they disappear to. And, and they really, that's how they handle it. And then they go around and joke with the guys. They, this is just in general. So it's, it's not, it doesn't take a lot as a, a young wife, if you're coming at your husband and hitting him and hitting him and hitting him, where they don't just say, you know, I've got better things. You can teach your daughters all you want. Get them this book. Go through this book. Go, but if they see you modeling, or not modeling that, that's going to be it's, the most powerful influence. With the raising of any children, it is the earlier the better. And it's not that you're teaching them on deference, but raising your children and disciplining them in all areas from a young age, they're going to see this stuff naturally. It's a lot harder when you have to learn this stuff later. But our daughter, Audrey, is just, I mean, we've never had talks with her on deference. She's seen it. She's also been disciplined, so she understands authority. She understands a guy, as in a dad, is a whole lot different than maybe the way mom might approach something. As dad comes uh, into the situation, things escalate. <laughs> but it's, it's, all, it's natural, much more than it is any book teaching or any, you know, you know, here's the secret to it. It's not that. It's it's disciplining them, and then, like you said, modeling it. I'm the guy who's like the representative of the, of the husband who's really hard to live with, and she's like this model. Um, so, Matt, you talked a lot about women being helpers in general, just in the church. What is it? look like for women to lead like in women's ministries or something like how, how does that how can we still yeah. be different even though we're over other women uh well that's that's a probably a good question for adrian again i'll let her speak to that for sure because she does a lot of leading and uh it you have to be very careful when you are going to be a woman leader in a church, okay, yes, it's over women. Yes, it may be over children. But at points you're going to be crossing paths with guys and what's right. And it might be crossing paths with, you know, the guy who's setting up chairs for your event. Can you direct them? You know, Adrian does... uh, uh, the Sunday school classes, the younger Sunday school classes over the kids, but we have male teachers. She's never going to have an authority over them. She organizes things. So when she has problems with men or needs something done, she's usually talking to me and we're talking about who, what male can approach in, in this way. So she makes sure she doesn't overstep. Um, but there, women should be doing quite a lot in that way in the church in supporting, helping, and running things, uh, you know, when they're able to. And, uh, and yet, it's, it is a very sensitive thing. Even, again, maybe it's not an elder where you say, I'm under him. It might be a guy in the congregation. And Adrian will say, I feel uncomfortable approaching this guy because it's not my role, even though I'm just trying to get him to show up to class on time, the teacher. And so that's where she'll get outside help. Does that, does that answer it? Do you have anything to add? <laughs> okay. 
then I do think that women, God uses women to shepherd and lead other women, that that's a part of his structure and that, you know, that we should be seeking out younger women and women maybe older in years, but younger in faith under us to, to lead them along. I um, want to add my own very recent experience with that. This week, um, I was, Jody and I are working on something together, and I was really annoyed with something that he had done. And I was writing him an email at 11.30 at night. And I knew that what I was doing was wrong, either in you know, in essence or tone, because I thought about whether I would copy Tim on the email and decided not to. (laughs) So, uh, you know, so I really knew that I was wrong (laughs) in what I was doing. Um, Jody responded the next morning very patiently and corrected some um, wrong information that I had. And... uh, (laughs) I wanted. I had. I didn't actually respond um, with what I should have, which was, and I do promise to go to the talk on women's deference. (laughs) (laughs) But it is hard because I, for me, it's hard because I have a, you know, kind of a commanding personality. I'm older than a lot of the staff, and I have to be very careful. And I'm working on being deferential to Mm -hmm. the pastors that I am older than. Is it good for a woman that serves in the church and um, um, to um, be a member? Since we were just talked about Barbara, like, is that a good thing for women to submit to an elder? Like, for both of you, Mary Lee's really smart and she's like the leader of our women. I'm sorry, <laughs> so I want to ask her too. Yeah, that's, I mean, absolutely. I think in we can look at the history of our church, probably very similar to your church, that the people who, who refuse to come under membership, usually there is a rebelliousness in that decision that they don't want to submit to authority. And someone, if I am unwilling to submit to authority, then I'm really not in a position to be a very good leader. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I was just wondering if there, if you would say there's a difference between submission and deference, or if deference is a description of how you submit, or if they're kind of synonymous. Because we talk about submission a lot, but um, the word deference is not used as much. And so. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'd say when you're deferring, I would say that submitting is under deference. Uh, deferring is is the act that you're doing, you know, whether you're yielding, submitting. Yeah, I think, you know, they're obviously very related, interrelated, and yet um, just thinking about my relationship with, uh, say, Jody, um, 
I'm not often in a situation where I would like have to submit to him, but I have to show deference uh, to him in the way that I communicate with him. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that there's a difference, um, but they're pretty closely related. We have to submit to our husbands and we have to submit to the elders, but we have to show deference to men in general. Could you talk about how you have done this or how it applies to like your older son, your oldest son? I have 18 year old sons and just trying to figure out how does this deference, how does that apply to them or does it, is that just totally different? Well, I think it's the same as we were talking with the raising up of our daughter. I mean, with him, he's just been raised up, seeing how it works. Now, will he find a wife who will defer? I'm not sure. I'm talking more the mother's relationship to her sons oh. as adults. Oh. Yeah, I would say that I don't... I don't sense deferring him in to him in that way what I what I have noticed as he grows in his faith is that there's come a point there's a line where I will actually ask him spiritual questions knowing that he actually has godly wisdom now well, um, let, let me yeah. I thought about this some um, with not just our 18 year old but how do you when do you defer to your children? Is that kind of yeah? It, at a, starting again at a young a young age, uh, both f for girls or boys, but as they're getting older and they, you see them in a position where they're starting to make a decision, you can't raise up your children commanding all their decisions. You, in one sense, now this isn't the authority bit. I I certainly have the right to clamp down and say this is how it is, son, and I do that when needed, but there's a lot of deferring going on by parents as they say to themselves, you know, I don't think that's a good decision they're going toward, but I'm going to let this, I'm going to let them make this decision, and it kind of taking that role of I'll help them out, maybe if they're wrong, they're going to learn a lesson, and so as they've grown up and become more wise, it becomes a whole lot easier to do that. But parents who clamp down on their children and try to make all the decisions for them, and uh, boy, you know, when they hit 18 or something, they make a whole lot of bad decisions because they haven't, they haven't suffered under making their own decisions. So it's, it is hard for a parent to step back and let kids screw up at points. Now, I'm going to draw the line at points where I say that's not acceptable or too dangerous or too something, and, and I'll, I'll let them have it pretty straight. Um, does that answer go the right way? Roving mic. You mentioned at the beginning, I think, in your, um, in your definition about deferring opinion. And my husband and I wind up having some of our most heated discussions about things that don't actually affect, you know, what we're going to do tomorrow or raise our kids or whatever, but things like politics or theology or whatever. Um, 
And I just want to know what what does that look like? Does that mean that, like, when we have people over, I shouldn't be bringing up those topics, or if they bring up, I should just be quiet? I guess is more like it. Well, are um, you are you having fun going back and forth a little bit? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it just gets to be too much. I guess I'm thinking like if right. somebody. We've been in situations where somebody comes over and they ask what we think about something that we have had many discussions about and we don't agree about. Um, I would defer, most likely. Yeah. I'm really conscious, too. You've all probably been in conversation. I'm not saying that this is what is going on. But when you're in a conversation and the wife is constantly correcting the husband, constantly, and I, I think publicly that he'll, like, tell a story wrong or be like completely oh that'll get me mad like well completely wrong in his facts or something and i'll just hold my tongue and tell him later that oh you know actually that <laughs> because to correct him in front of people just makes him look stupid you know or like i'm um now here you're talking about you know there are probably contexts when you can have a you know a healthy debate or something but if he strongly feels one way you strongly feel another way and someone asks well what do you guys think about this um, I would just defer. Just, go ahead, yeah, honey. Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> yeah. you have to say, though, at a, at a table or when you're having an enjoyable time, you can, this isn't, you know, women keep your mouth shut at all. You, it, there has to be a sensitivity of when you're really going to step on your husband's toes in the place you know you better not. Yeah. So, Make him look foolish in some way. Or, yeah, it, and a lot of times with corrections, uh, not to get in an argument here, but corrections that she'll make will be in, they, they aren't important to the story. What's important <laughs> is the story. And I'm like, <laughs> it, it, it's so when you put weight to that. In regards to Anne's question, like raising up our children with this attitude, what if we mess up as wives in front of our children and we don't defer or we like make a statement that we're like, oh, we shouldn't have said that? And then how do we handle that with our children, like if they see it? I've, I've just plainly gone to my children and confessed that I did not respond the right way and that I was going to ask for their father's forgiveness and that I was going to ask for God's forgiveness. And could they please forgive me as well? I think, our, I think it's so good to be vulnerable in front of our children and let them see us as sinners. Not that we want to lay our, you know, air our dirty laundry in front of them in any way. But when we sin and they see it, let that be an opportunity for spiritual growth on their part by seeing us model repentance. Yeah, I think, I mean, you just, you keep saying they see us do it. That's the main thing. It's not having some, again, simple answer for everything that's going to solve all your problems whenever a situation arises. You just, you have to model it. And they grow up modeling that. And if you, you know, if they see us get in an argument, um, I mean a real argument, and then they see that all the events that happen toward reconciliation, and if they don't see it, I go and make sure I tell them, you know, I went to your mom and apologized and I was wrong in this. They get it. But again, you, you just do it from the youngest age. You don't... I, I think that the main discipline of children, children 
if they don't understand all this by the time they reach 10, um, unless you're a new believer and you have all sorts of new input, it, uh, it's really hard once you get older than 10. And uh, it's, I'll say it's much harder at that point. So you don't start when they're old enough to understand. You start as young as you can. You've talked about um, modeling this for your children, but how do you help them to help your daughters, particularly, to learn this in their relationships with their brothers? Um, I have an, a daughter who's three years older than my son, and she tends to be the typical bossy firstborn um, <laughs> who runs this show. Um, and I'm just looking for suggestions on how to. Um, help her to be more deferential in her relationships within the family so that hopefully that won't be as much of a struggle mm -hmm. as she gets older in other areas as well. I think exhortation using scripture um, when it's not in the heat of the moment, you know, when they're not upset to sit her down and explain to her that you know, when she belittles her brother or, you know, treats him in this way, that she would be acting in a way that God would not want her to act and, you know, point out where she is, you know, doing wrong and then also give her scripture um, that she can, that you can point her to and have her memorize it in terms of what to act towards, you know, so you're correcting a behavior and giving her a new one to strive towards. Um, what would an appropriate way for an older sister to respond to a younger brother be? Like, so I understand what you're saying about the way to respond to that, mm -hmm. but what is the reality of deferential behavior, you know, between siblings, especially I would say with like, you know, that's going to be probably the most difficult would be an older girl to younger boys like I, I don't, what does that mean I have no I would say that um, it would be urging her to self-sacrifice for him um, is that yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean we have some younger kids and so that's a little with the older daughter and then a bunch of younger boys Our you know, she's babysitting we tell her to clamp down <laughs> you know we don't say be deferential. So yeah, so I hear you saying basic kindness, like I have a daughter that is frequently very unkind in her words. So that's an easy, yeah. like that's just mm -hmm. basic. She, she mm -hmm. needs to not speak that way to her brother. Mm -hmm. It's not because she needs to be deferential. It's because you shouldn't speak that way to anyone ever. Yeah, so that's easy. But right. like, is there any aspect of like deferential, you know, specifically with siblings? Well, I would say so, especially as they get older. Um, you know, I don't know when they're young, at what point you'd start, but as they get older, um, my daughter's going, my older daughter's going to have to defer to the younger ones as they're becoming men and trying to become men, the same way maybe as I was saying, as a parent has to, they may know that the younger one's a bit screwed up and they think they, the older one thinks they know everything, just like I will think I know something for the child, but 
They're going to have to give them space. There comes a point at which, I don't know the ages, but there comes a point when the younger boy is getting to the point where he needs to be treated not as an irritating little boy. Like I see sometimes with our 18-year-old daughter, she'll treat the 10-year-old like she treats the 6-year-old like, you know, like a little boy. And now he's to the age where he could rise to be a young man in his behavior. You know what I'm saying? He, and if he's treated like an irritating little boy, he's not going to. You know, she, you can, you know, you want to develop those responsible behaviors by giving him responsibility. So I, I'm not sure how old your kids are. No, that's helpful. Mine are younger. Yeah. Um, my, my oldest daughter is only five. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> not dealing with this on like, you know. Right. But really, it's, I think it would be urging your daughter to be self-sacrificing because the older one does want to dominate and domineer, but, you know, to how can you sacrifice for your brother? You guys are giggling over there. <laughs> See, I'm the older sister. You're the older sister. Okay. <laughs> Do whatever you want. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a question. Um, I really like, um, even though it's, it's not always accomplished. Nobody's perfect at it, but I do like practicing um, uh, deference and submitting. Um, and I also like to encourage uh, people who don't have a high view of men, which is understandable, um, how, how you would, um, you know, just encourage going about encouraging it to um, young women who are you know constantly talking about it um, and also there have been once or twice where um, a young man has asked me how a man should act in a, in a wanting to get um, suggestions almost from me and I didn't feel comfortable about it was I'm I'm wondering if that was the right approach just to not I told him to ask somebody who would be a man um. I would point him to a godly you know a godly man in the church you know that's probably a question that he might be able to answer a little bit better than me okay that's what I thought because I was if like, you want to send your wife over to me I'd be happy to talk to her okay that answers that then um, I am in a position where I have authority over men outside of the church. Um, I'm a teacher mm-hmm. at the university, and I was wondering if you have any practical suggestions um, to be deferential in that kind of environment. Hmm. I'll defer to you on this, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you are given a position of authority, um, you have the right to act as that authority. Uh, you know, and if it's in that setting, that, then that's the setting. You have authorities that have given you that authority. You aren't trying to usurp. You know, you can be a boss in that setting. Um, is it comfortable for the men? Do you have to be more careful with them? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think men are... Uh, a lot easier to be irritated, probably. Uh, 
when a woman comes at them. So you may have to be more sensitive that way. But I, I don't know, when you're running something and you have a, that position, I don't, you, you carry it out. I don't know if that's going to be a good answer or not. Um, it is about 9.30, so I think we're going to um, stop now. I think that they have a few more minutes if you want to come up and ask uh, another question more privately or anything. But I think we're going to draw to a close at this point. Um, let me pray. Father, we do thank you for Matt and Adrian and for their words tonight, for their sharing. Um, and we ask for safety for them as they drive back tomorrow and your blessing on them and their family as they um, serve you and raise their children to know and love and serve you. And we ask that what they have been teaching here tonight will be used in each one of our uh, marriages and homes. And so we just thank you for your word and the way that we can make it practical in a situation like this. So we ask for your um, blessing on us as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, um, Allie, where are you? Allie, oh, what do you want to tell us? What can you tell us about Emily? Did everybody hear me? Why'd you say it again? Um, when I left, they were just taking her for her ultrasound. Um, so at that point, they didn't really know anything. Um, she just was in a lot of pain, um, and the medication would wear off about every half hour, I would say. Um, so okay. there wasn't really much of anything. They asked her a lot of questions and okay. nothing definitive. So sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you for coming. <laughs>